Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses uh, 3 and 4 today. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 since we're starting this uh, new letter in our study together, 2 Thessalonians. So I'll start reading in verse 1. Where we have uh, three authors mentioned. Paul is obviously the primary author. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes these words for the building up and edification of his church and the glory of God. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. May God bless the reading of His Word. Well, the Apostle Paul was certainly a God-centered man who strove with God's help to live a God-centered life. He certainly understood that salvation is rooted in God's grace. And because of that, he was filled with thanksgiving in what God had done to save not only himself, but all the churches, all the believers that came to faith under his ministry and even beyond that. This uh, theology was traditionally summarized under the five solas of the Reformation. And uh, one of the uh, solas that certainly captures what Paul is emphasizing in these first few verses is the sola gratia which in Latin, of course, is translated into English as grace alone. What that sola means, one way you can describe it is this way. It means that salvation is a free gift of God, not based on our merit, not something we earn or deserve. Salvation is by grace from start to finish. Salvation is offered to all, but only given to the elect chosen before the foundation of the world. So for the reformers, sola gratia was essential to a biblical understanding of salvation. And it was a key to godly humility. To produce a humility within the hearts of God's people that was genuine because we understand the magnitude of the grace of God that's behind the entirety of our salvation. Martin Luther said that no man can thoroughly can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, devices, endeavors, will, and works, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely, of God alone. So that the Reformers 
in light of the teaching of the Scriptures, believed and taught that any attempt to give any man any credit for their salvation, even the smallest part, is in effect smuggling in human works into the Gospel and into the back door of the message of the Gospel. Sola gratia means that salvation is totally the work of God. So not only does God sovereignly accomplish our salvation, but God sovereignly applies our salvation to those whom He has chosen. And because of that, this made Paul habitually a man overflowing with thanksgiving. And what made him so thankful is sola gratia. That God's grace has imparted all these incredible gifts to God's people. And when he understood that, he just overflowed with thanksgiving to God. So that will be our theme this morning. Since this is Reformation Sunday, we want to see how Paul is emphasizing sola gratia in the verses that we're looking at and how it results in not only a great humility, but also in an overflowing thanksgiving. And we hope and pray that it will have the same effect upon us today. Well, let's look again at the, the passage, starting in verse 3. Notice Paul offers up his thanksgiving to God. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Now notice in two ways the Apostle Paul is saying that we should give thanks to God. He says we ought always to give thanks to God. And in this sense, Paul feels a certain obligation, but he's impelled to give thanks to God. He's elated to express his gratitude to God for all the blessings of grace and salvation that they have received. The very effects that we'll see later on in the passage are evidence that God's grace has been richly poured out upon their lives. And so, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. And then he adds to that, brethren, as is only fitting. It's proper. It's right. And it's fitting for two reasons. The first reason is because God is worthy of being thanked for His grace. And, and, and His grace is behind every flourishing church. Every good and perfect gift comes from a God from, from above. So it is fitting for us to praise God and to give Him thanks for all the blessings that we've received from Him. Thanksgiving is always fitting because God is always gracious. The second reason why Thanksgiving is fitting is because of the virtues, the three virtues that Paul is now about to explore. And, and uh, these are the reasons for why Paul is giving thanks to God. The first one is that their faith is greatly enlarged. The second one is that their love is ever growing greater. And the third one, as we'll see when we get down into verse 4, is for their perseverance and faith in the midst of their many persecutions that they're enduring. So these are the reasons for giving thanks to God. And you can summarize it by saying it's sola gratia. 
is because of God's grace at work in their faith, their love, their perseverance that is causing Paul to overflow in thanksgiving to God. So this is where he's going. His thanksgiving is rooted in sola gratia. It's all the work of God. It's all from God's grace. God deserves the praise and the glory forever and ever. It's interesting when we start looking at verse 3. Notice again, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged. So he starts out by speaking about their, their, their faith that is growing. Now notice what Paul does not do in this passage. He does not congratulate them for their faith as if they had a free will. And their faith came from them. He does not congratulate them and pat them on the back, as it were, and say, good job. You believed. You know, you came to faith in Christ. You did that on your own. And, and then congratulate them. No. What does he do? He gives thanks to God for their faith. Now, what does that imply? What well, implies that faith is from God. It's a gift of God. That ultimately it's not something that we manufacture, something that comes out of our own will, but actually it is a God-given grace. And that's why Paul is thanking God for the increase of their faith. If Paul believed that their faith came from within themselves, why is he thanking God? for what God did not produce. But the very fact that he is thanking God, Paul believes that's because their faith, both initial faith and sanctifying faith, ultimately are produced by God. And I think that's the proper way to understand it. So in effect, it's sola gratia. It's the grace of God has produced this faith. So I'm giving thanks to God for His grace operating in your heart and life. So what I want to do now is just to uh, kind of give you a fire hose drink of just a, a lot of verses that are going to go over this notion to, to emphasize the incredible grace of God. It's God's grace that has saved us from beginning to end. Every phase of our salvation is ultimately rooted in the sovereign grace of God. So that's what we're going to kind of explore and try to work through this quickly if we can. But I want to begin with faith, since that's where Paul begins. He thanks God because their faith is greatly enlarged. So several things I want to lay out real quickly. Faith, therefore, must be a gift of God and, and primarily due to our own depravity because faith cannot come from an unregenerate heart. Remember in Ephesians 1, Paul reminded them that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. So in other words, if you're spiritually dead, you're not going to respond to God because you're dead spiritually. Your heart has been corrupted. Your heart has been filled with enmity towards God. You don't want Christ because you're spiritually dead. Paul says in Romans 3, there's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. 
If we had a free will, surely we can understand it to, uh, to incline us to believe in Jesus Christ. But he says none even seeks for God. How is it that some people end up seeking for God when our nature in general renders us no one seeks for God? In Romans 8, he says our mind is even hostile to God. We don't submit ourselves to the law of God, which is very insightful because if you're ever going to be saved, you have to submit yourself to the convicting, condemning ministry of the law of God as it points out our sin. And now I realize I'm, I'm a sinner. I realize I'm under the curse of God and I, I deserve the wrath of God. Therefore, I need a Savior. But if you're unwilling to submit yourself to the law of God, you deny your sin. You think you're basically a good person. That God will weigh your, your deeds on the judgment day and you're going to have more good deeds and bad deeds and you think you'll make it into heaven. You never will that way. God's standard is perfection. The mind of man is not friendly towards God. It's hostile towards God. I will never submit to Him. I'm hostile. I'm His enemy. So how can faith come out of a heart that is hostile towards the things of God? Paul says in other places that uh, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the Gospel. So if there's an unbeliever, their minds are blinded by Satan so they can't see the light of the Gospel. How are they ever going to willingly come when they can't even see it, when they're spiritually blind? There has to be a supernatural power that overcomes all this depravity for any sinner to come to faith in Christ. Jesus was quite blunt and, and pretty graphic when he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. No one can come. You see, that implies that there is no free will. Because if there really was free will, then God would say everyone can come. They just have to decide within their will. But he says the exact opposite. No one can come. Come to faith in Christ. No one. See, our heart has been damaged by the sin we've inherited from Adam. Our will has been so corrupted that it's unable to repent and believe in Christ apart from God's grace that has changed us. Again, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says the mind has been impacted as well. Not only our will, but also our mind. The natural man, the unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He can't understand it because it's spiritually appraised. He can't figure it out. Oh, he can, as I told the, my Sunday school class going over some of these same things, that an unbeliever can rationally comprehend some of the logic of the gospel, but his heart will never submit and yield to it personally. He doesn't understand it on that level. He doesn't accept it. It's foolishness to him. He can't understand it. His mind has been corrupted by our sin nature so that the mind does not, cannot grasp the glory of the Gospel unless God enables us. 
So the problem that we have and the reason why Paul is giving thanks to God for their growing faith is because their faith ultimately comes from God. He is thanking the giver of the faith. That's why he's thanking God and not congratulating them. The issue that we have is we have a bad heart by nature. And that heart needs to be replaced first before we'll ever come to faith in Christ. We need a new heart. As Jeremiah says, a heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately, really the Hebrew idea is incurably sick. Who can understand it? So the heart is deceitful. The heart is sick. And it's an incurable sickness. It's also in other expressions, spiritually dead. But in this context, the sickness is so prevalent, so deep, that you cannot be cured of it based on human powers or medicines or help. Jesus said the same thing. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. A bad heart, like a bad tree, cannot produce good fruit. The heart must be changed out. There must be a supernatural heart transplant before anybody will have the lights come on, will have eyes to see, ears to hear, will see their sin and see the beauty and glory and love of Jesus Christ and call upon Him for salvation. This old heart will not do that. It cannot do that. And so God, what He does in His grace is He takes out the old heart and gives us a new heart which suddenly responds in faith in Jesus Christ. To Jeremiah, God said, I will give them a heart to know Me. See, the heart that they had did not know the Lord. It couldn't know the Lord. Didn't want to know the Lord. So God says, I will give them a heart to know Me. That's a different heart that God has to give before people will ever come to faith in Christ. In Ezekiel 36, God promised the same thing. He'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes. And that was began its fulfillment at Pentecost where, where the Jews, the Jewish people, suddenly began to experience the, the radical new birth, the heart transplant promised to them in Ezekiel 36. And then the glory is we Gentiles are grafted in. So this is being fulfilled now within the church. And that includes the, the land promises that are also included in that passage, which is ultimately fulfilled on the new earth. Because... Ezekiel goes on to describe this land promise. When God changes it, it's going to be like the Garden of Eden and it's going to be an everlasting inheritance. And those are expressions used for the new earth. So, this is what God is doing. The old heart must be changed out before it will ever come to faith in Christ. Again, this is why Paul is giving thanks to God for their faith. Because it's God who gave them that faith. Their old heart could never produce it. 
That's why John says in John chapter 1 that as many as received Him, referring to Christ, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. And now, in the next verse, He's going to describe how they believed in His name. What caused them to believe in His name, in the name of Christ. They were born not of blood, not based on physical genealogy, nor the will of the flesh. Your nature, your human nature was not what caused you to believe, nor the will of man. Nobody else was able to persuade you or cause you to be born again. No, you were born of God. Born again of God. And that's why you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus went on to say to Nicodemus in John 3.5 that he must first be born of water and the Spirit or he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In verse 3, he said he can't see the kingdom of God either unless you're born again. Your heart must be changed before you see the kingdom and can enter it by faith. The heart must be changed first. And only God can change your heart. You cannot change your own heart. Just like the Ethiopian, the leopard can't change his spots. We can't change our our nature. And that's why Paul would say in Romans 9, verse 16, so it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It's not based upon you willing. That's not how you get saved is by your free will, by an act of your will. It's by the grace of God. It's the mercy of God that has caused you to come to faith in Christ. It's interesting that our faith, again, sola gratia, from beginning to end, all of our salvation comes from God's grace. And there's a lot of verses that also speak to our faith is linked to our election as well. Remember all the way back in 1 Thessalonians, Paul has already taught this to this church when he wrote about it in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 4. He says, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you, so God chose them. And how do you know that God has chosen them? For our Gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. They came to faith. The faith was the result of God choosing them for salvation. Luke in Acts 13 writes another amazing verse in verse 48 of Gentiles who come to faith in Christ. He says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now many years ago, there was a Bible called the Living Bible that was real popular when I was in college. And this would be back in the uh, in the 70s. And I remember buying one because really as a paraphrase, it really wasn't uh, a translation. But I remember reading this verse in the in the Living Bible, and it goes like this at the end of it: "As many as had believed were appointed to eternal life." It just reverses it, and by reversing it, they totally distort the meaning of the verse. What the verse is saying is what caused some to believe is that they were first appointed by God to eternal life. They were chosen by God 
And it's those who were appointed by God to eternal life, they are the ones who came to faith. So faith is the work of God. Later on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul will say the same things. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren. Almost like what he's saying here in our verse. Beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So He's chosen you to save you. How is He going to save you? By the sanctification of the Spirit, faith in the truth. That's the means of of His grace that brings them into salvation. Jesus again in John 6 verse 37 said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me, that's the chosen ones that the Father gives to the Son to save. And they will all come to me. They will come in faith to Christ. Who will? Those whom the Father has given to the Son. And all of them will come. None of them will not come. All of them will come. And Jesus says, and I will certainly not cast them out. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. They will all be saved. So again, our faith is something that God works in those whom He gives to Jesus to actually save. Repentance is no different. It's also a work of God. In Acts 16, verse 14, Lydia says the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So here we have Lydia's there. Paul is preaching. Lydia's among those women. He's at the prayer meeting by the river in Philippi. And she's just sitting there listening. Okay? She's kind of going in one ear out the other. She's just sitting there listening. She still has her old heart. So she's not responding. And then God opens her heart. God changes her heart. Suddenly she responds. So that the faith is the work of God. It's the product of God's grace for which we should give thanks to God for. Again, Jesus, John 6.44, we've already looked at, no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. So it's the Father's drawing people to Christ. That's what enables them to believe. And this drawing is effectual. It's irresistible because Jesus goes on to say that the one that the Father draws, He will raise up on the last day. They will be saved. They will be resurrected in the resurrection of the righteous. Everyone that the Father draws, none will be left out. They will all be resurrected with Christ when Christ comes back. Rather, Paul says to Timothy that the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. God's grace was abundant with what? What did, the, what did the grace of God bring in abundance to the Apostle Paul? Faith and love. Those are two things that God works within our hearts. Paul in Philippians 1.29 said it's been granted or graciously given for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So God gives you two gifts when He saves you. Number one, the gift of faith. And number two, the gift of suffering, which He'll use mightily in our sanctification. Paul also says to the Roman church, 
And God has allotted to each a measure of faith. God has allotted that to you. He has determined the amount and given it to you. So your faith ultimately is granted, allotted, given by God. Ephesians 2.8 says the same thing. By grace you've been saved through faith that not of yourselves is the gift of God. And faith is certainly included within that gift. As far as uh, repentance, look at what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.25. He's encouraging Timothy here how to deal with people who who are combative, those who disagree with the gospel, He's uh, encouraging him to be a, a bond servant and to deal with these people in a certain way. And he explains it in verse 25 when he says, deal with them with gentleness. All these unbelievers that are opposing the gospel, be gentle with them, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. If perhaps God may, God may not. But it's God's decision to grant repentance or not. So he's telling Timothy basically just be kind, be gentle, correct them, certainly in op- who are in opposition, and pray for God to give them, grant them repentance. But it's God's ultimate decision whether he does that or not. Luke in Acts 11 verse 18 says, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And this is in reference to the salvation of Cornelius and his household in chapter 10. God has granted to them repentance. So it's God's gift that He's given to them. So initial or saving faith is a gift of God. It's rooted in God's grace. Sola gratia. And we could also say, and this is really what Paul is emphasizing in verse 3, is that their sanctifying faith is also the work of God as well. Again, verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged. See, they had a growing faith. Their faith was being enlarged. And Paul is thanking God for that. That's why the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 2, could exhort us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, of faith. He's the author of it. He initiates it. He gives it at the beginning, but he's also the perfecter of faith. So he matures it. He grows it. He enlarges it. So we need to fix our eyes upon Jesus who does both of those. Philippians 1.6, it's implied that He who began a good work in you will perfect it till the day of Christ Jesus. That involves perfecting our faith, bringing it to maturity, helping it to grow. We need God's grace for that to happen. And Paul says to the Philippian church, That God promises if He began that work, He'll complete it. In chapter 2, He still exhorts us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We certainly can't undermine the responsibility that we have to be 
involved in the means of grace. So he says, work out. Notice not work for your salvation, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So in all of this, Paul is thanking God for their faith, not only their initial saving faith, but for their growing faith as well. He's giving all the thanksgiving and glory to God. So he's not congratulating them on how well they're doing, but he's actually praising the author and source of the grace that they have that has enabled their faith to grow. Well, quickly, there's a second virtue that Paul is also giving thanks to God for in reference to the the Thessalonians. And this is also rooted in the the grace of God. And this is also in verse 3. He's thanking God also that the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. So now the fact that their love is growing among them, Paul is thanking God for their love. And this is, I think this is encouraging that if we're ever struggling in our faith or struggling in our love for other people, and we just are frustrated, we just can continue to wrestle with, God can give us more. God can give us more faith. God can give us more love. We need to draw near to Him and seek Him and pursue the means of grace for that, absolutely. But He's thanking God for their love. That their love is growing toward one another ever greater, ever stronger. Praise God. I mean, that's... This is a a phenomenal church here. So growing love is also the work of God. How do we know that? Well, Galatians 5.22 is the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. So love is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So ultimately, the Spirit produces that fruit in the lives of God's people. Ephesians 6, Paul references it when he says, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's pronouncing, he's praying for them, peace, love, faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, give them more more peace, more love, more faith because it comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. So that's the second virtue that Paul is thanking God for in the Thessalonian church. And then there's a third one, which may not be as clear, but in verse 4 he says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And I think what Paul is still saying is I'm giving thanks to God for your perseverance and faith, but I'm also boasting about you to the other churches. I think that's the idea. Some may want to read this and say, well, golly, it looks like that um, you know Paul has thanked God for their faith and their love, but now that they've gotten saved... Now they must have a free will because now he's just boasting in their own perseverance. 
as if it's something that comes from them and not also comes from God. And I do run into people from time to time that think that, okay, we are depraved. Uh, God does choose us. He saves us. He gives us faith to be saved. but, But then He also gives us a free will. So now the whole Christian life is just all based upon our free will choices. But I don't think that's what the Scripture is saying either. I think ultimately what Paul is saying is he's thanking God for their faith that's growing, for their love that's getting greater, and also for their perseverance that's enduring through all of these trials and afflictions that they're going through. There are several reasons why I think Paul is also giving thanks for that, for their perseverance as well. First off, in other places, he says our perseverance comes from God. For example, in Romans 15, verse 5, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So here, Paul is saying that God is the one who gives perseverance. So even our perseverance is ultimately the result of God's activity and work in our heart. He gets the credit, not us. That's why in heaven, all the 24 elders will take their crowns and cast them before the Lamb of God. Why? Because ultimately, their crowns come from His grace. And they're acknowledging it by giving Him all the glory, receiving none to themselves. And again, in Philippians, he began a good work and it will perfect it. God's going to cause us to persevere. It's his grace. It's his mercy that causes our faith to hang in there, even though it's battered and get beaten and trampled on and run over and dragged into the gutter. And it just seems like we go through all these struggles. It is God's grace in our heart that keeps our faith from just saying, I'm out of here, Jesus. I'm going to go my own way. You can have it. I reject you. And they become an apostate. That will not happen to a true child of God. Because God's grace is ever present to cause us to persevere. This was the thing with Simon. Remember? When Jesus told Simon that Satan was going to have his day with him, And whenever Satan has his way with us, as God allows it, then uh, it's not going to be good. But Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan is... Really, the translation should be requested permission. Satan can't demand anything from God. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat. So when did that experience happen in Peter's life? When did Satan so sift Peter like wheat that he just kind of tore him apart and, and removed the, the part of his, of, his, of his wheatness, I guess you could say? When did that happen? It's when he denied Christ three times in the courtyard of Caiaphas. Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So why did Peter's faith, it stumbled, he fell on his face, quite frankly, but his faith did not fail, and he later repented. Why? Because he was such a godly man? Because he just had that within himself? No. 
It's because his Savior, his high priest, prayed for him. And that's what enabled his faith to sustain this incredible, embarrassing, shameful denial of his Savior three times. This is the grace of God. This is not found in Peter. This is found in Christ. So that our perseverance in the ultimate reality does not depend upon how tight we are gripping onto Christ, but how tight He's gripping onto us. And this is ultimately why perseverance is also a grace from God for which Paul is giving thanks to God for. This, uh, to kind of wrap up some of these thoughts, in all that I've tried to emphasize uh, from this passage this morning, I certainly don't want you in any way to think that this eliminates our responsibility to pursue the means of grace. I believe our saving faith is from God and our sanctifying faith is from God. But that does not say that therefore we can just be passive or we can be uncommitted or we can just be slothful with the means of grace. Absolutely not because the Scriptures don't allow us to take that attitude. So that ultimately our faith is is vital and we need to pursue seeking to build it up to strengthen it, to engage in all that we can to help our faith grow strong. We are responsible, though ultimately it is God's grace working in us. But faith is vital to your Christian life. It's kind of like the the hair of Samson was the source of his strength. And and our faith is the source of our strength. And whenever the the scissors of unbelief come in and, and shear it down, well then suddenly our strength becomes weak and we're more vulnerable to the discouragement and the fears and the worries of life because our faith is weak. So we are responsible to pursue the means of grace, the Word of God, prayer, fellowship, those things that can help strengthen our faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And without faith, all the promises of God will just wilt before your very eyes and fall over to the ground. And you will not smell the sweetness of God's Word because our faith is just too weak. The encouragement is that God can strengthen our faith even when we're frustrated and failing to do so ourselves. God can enlarge our love for one another. God can maintain our perseverance because ultimately, it all comes from sola gratia. It's designed to give us the comfort in our spiritual struggles to pursue after the means of grace, but it gives God all the glory. And that's why even in verse 4, When Paul says, therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you, or some translations may say, we boast about you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions. And by saying that we speak proudly of you, Paul is not saying, now perseverance, that's all your work. So now I congratulate you. He is basically saying, I am boasting about you, but I'm giving the thanks." 
and the glory to God because ultimately God gets the glory for it. Boasting is never encouraged when it's boasting in ourselves. Matter of fact, the Bible always condemns that self-boasting or boasting in, in our own strength, our own abilities. That's why Paul could say to the Corinthians, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump of dough? And James says, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So what is the proper way to boast? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now that's biblical boasting. You can boast in the Lord. We can't boast in in ourselves, in our strength, in our accomplishments, but we can boast in God. And I think that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing. He is boasting in God. He's, He's telling others about what they're doing and persevering, but he's giving all the glory and giving thanks to God for it ultimately. That's why Paul in his letter to the Ephesians in that first chapter that's so rich, it's so wonderful, it's so Trinitarian because Paul throughout these verses 4 through 14 is is talking about the Father's work in our salvation and then he talks about the Son's work in our salvation and then the Holy Spirit's work in our salvation. And at the end of each of those three little sections, he just blurts out with things like this. He talks about in verse 4, that God chose us before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, He predestined us to His sons. And verse 6, it's all to the praise of the glory of His grace. It's all to God's praise. All to His glory. All thanksgiving and praise and worship belongs to Him because it's from His grace. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. And this great doctrine of sola gratia that Paul really begins this second letter with is rooted in the fact that Paul is rejoicing in their faith and their love and their perseverance, but ultimately he's giving all the praise and thanksgiving to God, not to them. And this should have a very humbling effect upon all of God's children to recognize that that our salvation, even our own faith, is not something that we can in any way take the credit for because it all comes ultimately from God. And that ought to produce a deep humility. Uproot all pride and arrogance and holier-than-thou attitude, but to humble us because even our faith was a gift from God. So I think Martin Luther was right when he said that no man can thoroughly be humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, devices, endeavors, will and works, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely, of God alone. For those who understand and agree with and, 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 and have embraced this theology, it ought to fill us with a sense of not only great humility, but an awe of why would God choose me? Why would God give me faith when I deserve to go to hell? 
And I'm no better than any other sinner out there. Why would God show mercy to me and not to the multitudes that are out there? And it ought to just fill us with a sense of just incredible awe and thanksgiving because our God is a God of sola gratia. I love the, the hymn of Isaac Watts when he captures this sense of of awe that we should all have this morning. When he wrote, Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we have still refused to taste and perished in our sin. And so that this is the reason why Paul is giving thanks to God for their faith, their love, and their perseverance. It's filling him with thanksgiving to God because all of that is rooted in sola gratia, to the grace of God alone. And that's why all the glory and praise and thanksgiving belongs to God alone as well. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank You for how the Apostle Paul, under the guidance of the Spirit, has directed our hearts and our minds to You in thanksgiving and humble awe as we recognize that all that we are in Christ all of the faith that we have, all of our love, all of our perseverance through all the trials of life, ultimately are graces and virtues that come from You. To You and You alone belong the glory. To You and You alone comes all that wonderful, incredible grace. And to You alone belongs the deepest, humblest, all-filled thanksgiving because You have saved us from start to finish. It's all from You and You deserve the praise. So Lord, receive that from us right now. May every heart in this room humble ourselves and look up to You in faith and just simply say, thank You, God, for saving me. And we ask this in Jesus' name.